Our scripture this morning comes in which, of course, Calvin would not preach from, but there it is. He always, he didn't even write a commentary on, on, on Revelation, you know that? What he said was, I don't understand this book, and somebody better is going to come along who can do this. <clears throat> really, that's what he said. So there's no, no commentary on the book of Revelation from John Calvin. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word for us this day. Brief proclamation of this word, only concentrating on one verse. Verse 10, the second half, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All of these surrounding the throne are looking at the Lamb in his glory, having been redeemed, having been brought out as brands from the fire, brought into the presence of the Lord, and bestowed with a white robe of righteousness to be able to look at their Lord and say, not because of anything we have done, but because of your majesty, your perfections, your glory, we have salvation and we are here. Salvation belongs to our God. They recognize that they are there by grace. They are there exclusively because of God's tenderness and love, because of God's determination to bring them out of ruin and to remake them so that they may stand upright with clear eyes, looking into the bright light who is our God and being able to be with him, seeing the glory of God in the face of the Lamb seated on the throne. This is not the only time that verse, salvation, belongs to our God. But this is not the only time that that word shows up. We see it in the life of Jonah after Jonah has been plunged into the water, has been swallowed by the fish, has been in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, has given up on his life and cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord our God, O Lord, save me, if you will. It was then that the fish vomited him up. 
It was also said by the psalmist David as he looked at the pressures that his own son Absalom was bringing against him. And he looks to the Lord and says, salvation belongs to the Lord our God. It didn't belong in the hand of any earthly king. It didn't belong in the hand of any person and what they could do. It didn't belong within their power. It belonged exclusively to a God who can bestow it or not bestow it as he pleases. And where he is pleased, there is joy in the heart, and people are drawn to him. This is the verse that will govern our meditations this morning. John Calvin was in no hurry to take a wife. He didn't have time for a woman. He didn't have time for a wife. He hadn't really thought about marriage very much. He was a scholar. He became a reformer in Geneva in 1537. He was actually just passing through town after he had written his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was a doctrinal summary of what the scriptures teach with regard to salvation. Very pastoral, very instructive. But as he's passing through town, William Farrell said, you need to stay here and help me organize reformation in this town. The Reformation had already been underway for 15 years underneath the work of Martin Luther. So Calvin stayed. They worked there for a while, but Geneva did not like them, and so they were exiled. They were just expelled from the city, and they went to Strasbourg. Calvin moved in with Martin and Elizabeth Booser, who were serving a small congregation, St. Thomas, in, uh, in Strasbourg. Martin was a former Dominican monk. His wife was super hospitable. She just loved entertaining people. Their home had the nickname the Inn of Righteousness. Calvin had never seen such a happy marriage, and he actually started to think about it at that point. Booser, Martin Booser, was so pleased with marriage that uh, he urged marriage for all of his ministerial colleagues. And so he says... You ought to have a wife, Calvin. And he said this to Calvin more than once. By this time, Philip Melanchthon of Germany had been married 19 years and was a happy, happy man. His wife, Katerina, had a rollicking sense of humor. She loved to feed people. Martin says, the only complaint is that she looks at me, or rather, uh, Philip says, the only complaint I have is that she looks at me and she insists on feeding me more because she's afraid I'm going to starve to death. Well, Calvin realized, maybe I do need somebody. I need somebody who will share some life with me and take care of me. And so he told some of the people he was hanging around with that it was probably time and he was now in the market for a wife and he was open to any suggestions. And knowing John Calvin, you have to understand, he had job qualifications, right? She doesn't have to be beautiful, but I'll be interested if she is chaste, not too fussy or fastidious, if economical, if patient, 
And if there's some hope that she'll be interested about my health, Calvin was not a really healthy guy. Well, it was shortly after that that Calvin sends a note to his friend William Farrell, and he says, I want you to set aside a date for shortly after Easter, I'm going to, get a, I'm going to be getting married. Farrell said, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear this. This is thrilling. I'm thrilled for you, John. I had no idea. Who is she? When do we get to meet her? Calvin responded, I don't have her yet. I'm starting interviews in a couple weeks. (laughs) Interviews, John? Interviews? Do you think you should have someone before you set a date? Well, as it played out, there were a few candidates. The first candidate was a wealthy German woman. Her brother was a strong supporter of Calvin, and she was willing to get married. The problem was that she didn't know any French, and she had no interest whatsoever in learning French. Calvin spoke French. That was a problem. If you're going to have marriage to somebody, it would be helpful to be able to communicate with them, or at least to have them communicate with you. It's hard enough when you both speak English, right? The second candidate, William Farrell, suggested she spoke French. She was a committed Protestant. But Calvin learned that, well, Calvin was 30 years old and she was 47, and he just never really followed up on that one. The third candidate, Calvin writes Farrell, I found somebody. Uh, Let's not delay beyond the 10th of March. She spoke French. She didn't have any money. She was highly recommended by friends. Calvin was interested, but she lost interest. It's like, I don't know. Maybe I have to care care for this guy too much. Well, John was sufficiently embarrassed by all of this business that he just gave up on it. He stopped looking, and as soon as he stopped looking, that's when God brought somebody across his path. Her name was Idolette de Buer. She was in the congregation in Strasbourg. And um, she was a widow. She had a couple of children. And uh, John hadn't really thought about her, but uh, it was Martin Booser that said, John, why don't you think about Idolette? Calvin took a look at Idolette and said, this could really work. She's really committed. She's attractive, intelligent. She's a woman with culture. She's upper middle class. She's got character and quiet strength. And they got married. And Calvin tasted the sweetness of marriage. The Reformation touched lots and lots of things. It touched, as we, uh, as we look at Reformation Sunday, the things that, the, that we, we look at typically are the theology of the Reformation. We look at uh, solas. We look at... Uh, uh, everything that made the Protestant Church distinct, uh, distinct that we, the distinction that we have from the Roman Church of the medieval age, the roots of our Protestant theology, that Scripture alone is authority and there's justification by faith alone in Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation only comes through Christ, not through many avenues. It's exclusively by grace that God was pleased to do this. He didn't have to. And in salvation, God is fully sovereign. That is, salvation belongs 
to the Lord our God. It's his. These are standards that have become important to us because they are important. They actually transform the world, bringing the gospel back into light. The Reformation stretched from 1517 to 1572, and it covered um, Germany, Switzerland, France, Holland, England, Scotland. Uh, To be able to cover the Reformation adequately would take six weeks of morning and evening service on Sunday, Wednesday evening study, probably some time in Sunday school, and maybe a little bit of private study during the week. There's that much that was going on. It was that much of a transformation in the church. And in sad case, and sadly, in some cases, there was plenty of upheaval, too, in church and society. It would take weeks to describe. Neither Martin Luther, the lightning rod of the Reformation, that's what I call him, uh, nor his co-reformer Ulrich Zwingli ever intended for a wider cultural reformation, but it was not in their hands. Once the truth was set free, the transformation began. So that now there's so much about it that's just part of the atmosphere that we breathe. We don't think about it. We are children of a reformation and a significant reformation. And especially we in America who have inherited all of the reformation traditions of all of those countries and see them embedded in our constitution and in our way of life here in this country. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to jog through a number of things and then land on just one, so please don't get frustrated. Most of these are familiar, but they still need to be said. Reformation became something much, much, much larger than the Reformers expected. The key pieces in Reformation thought and theology actually settled in on four questions. The first question was the one that the Reformers started striving to answer, especially Martin Luther, of course, and that is, how how can a person be saved? How is a person saved? The Roman Catholic Church had laid out plenty of principles, but Titus 3, 4, and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We readily recognize what has become a sort of a rubric for us, justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, by God's grace alone. The second question is, where does religious authority settle? Where does it rest? From where does it flow? Immediately, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ come to mind out of Matthew 4.4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Scripture alone is that final authority over men and women, and not the pronouncements of popes, bishops, councils, or any other gathered bodies of men who might make formal declarations with spiritual authority, quote, unquote. Even as Luther said during his trial before the emperor of the empire, Unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of the scriptures or by clear arguments from them, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures, and my conscience is bound in the word of God. 
I cannot and will not recant anything since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. May that actually be a motto for us. Unless you convince me from Scripture, I can't recant. I, I'm not going to be able to recant. I won't. I will walk faithfully with the Lord as he reveals himself in the word. The third question was, what's the church? Now, all of the reformers settled in that it was the great company of the redeemed who from the least to the greatest is a holy priesthood. And in all of this, they affirmed over and over again that which we read in the book of Revelation, that God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord our God. God's designed it. He has purposed it. He's decreed it. He's providing it. And he's the one who makes it effective. Immediately what this meant for the reformers is that they had to change church practices. They had, they, had, they had to ask the question, wait a minute, what is it that God wants us to do in worship? And even though there were little debates between them about that, they were all asking the same question. If God is God and we are his and he's king and Christ has authority over all things, what has he said about how we must worship? And so they started to rethink and reform church practices. And some of the things they had to look at were appointments to ministry. There were men who were in ministry, who were bishops, who were, uh, who were cardinals that either were, they bought their position or they were indebted to someone so they were put into that position. Not necessarily that they had any kind of a heart for the Lord, nor knew the scripture, but they had some other avenue in. So they had to ask the question about appointments to ministry. Who belongs there? It's the same question that we have to ask today, and we do ask it, don't we? Who actually belongs there? And not necessarily because of their personality, but has God called them, and how do we know that? Something which, by the way, You should be encouraged. Your search committee has asked that question several times in the course of our deliberations, and we are content that God has clarified for us. Who belongs here? They had to rethink the sacraments. Are the sacraments something that we do in order to win favor with God, or is it a gift that he's given to us in order to bless his people? And then who puts the power in the sacrament? Is it really a priest? What's the significance of the church? And so the reformers taught a spiritual doctrine of the church. It was depicted as a serving priesthood of believers against the medieval idea of the church as a hierarchical institution. And then there were questions about the translation of the scriptures into the common language. There were questions about singing. There was never any singing in the medieval church. And suddenly there was singing in the Reformed churches. And then discipleship instruction for congregational members in the Ten Commandments, in the Catechism. The final question was this. What's the essence of Christian living 
not only what what is God's church, but what's the essence of Christian living? And a simple answer came to be that all of life is conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the simple answer. That's the simple answer. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Simple answer is, all of life is to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But boy, the outworking of that became difficult and complicated and messy. I don't have time to talk about the peasant revolts and some of the violent outbreaks that took place, the people who were threatened, the ways in which they had to be protected. And today, 501 years later, we're still working on how to work that out and then preserve it. Because sometimes we think, once we've got that decision made, everything's okay. No, it's not. There are always those who would want to undo it for some other purpose. So the reformation of ordinary things became the next step. And that's really what I want to start to settle in on. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God does not save our souls just for us to feel comfortable about eternity. There's a whole life, not just our personal life, but the life around us. Lots of ordinary things, daily things, were also reformed as the truth was searched out and made its infiltration into people's hearts and minds. For example, the whole notion of labor, working, right? Ulrich Zwingli came to the conclusion that Swiss's economy needed some sort of transformation. For example, the Swiss economy in the medieval age was largely supplied by mercenary soldiers, soldiers that hired themselves out to other nations in order to undertake warfare. They did it for money, and that money would come in, and they would spend it in Switzerland, and that's how Switzerland sustained its economy. And Zwingli said, you know what? You need to stop being mercenaries and start doing agriculture. Why don't you just grow your food and take care of your own communities? And that began a work ethic in Switzerland that began to transform that country. Public safety, that is, in-home heaters is one example. Um, Somebody invented an in-home heater, and it had to be tested. So one of the reformers said, you know what? You can test it in my home. If I die, then you better not sell this to people. If I live through the night, then we can put it on the market. He lived. The in-home heater went out on the market. They hadn't quite accounted for carbon monoxide, so I think that ultimately there were little problems. Public education. 
for the sake of the population being able to read the word of God. Governmental leaders that are subject to the same law as the citizens in the nation. That was a completely new thing. Because it was understood that all men are under the law of God. We've inherited that. We assume that for our politicians. We assume that for our governmental leaders. They might not assume it, but we do. It's assumed in our Constitution. The Reformation transformed all kinds of aspects of life, including the practice of reading. Do you know that women didn't actually read very much biblical material prior to the Reformation? They, that material was restricted from them. And then the Reformation put all of that stuff out on the printing press, and suddenly everybody had access to the debates that were going on because the pamphlets were just widely distributed, and women were now able to read what the debates were about in their own homes and actually discuss it with one another. That was a remarkable transformation. So that's just one more example. But the last area that I really want to talk about that resulted in being transformed by the Reformation is marriage. Marriage. Some scholars have argued that other than the church, the sphere of life which the Reformation most profoundly affected was marriage in the home. You and I take this for granted, this Reformation of marriage, this idea that marriage is actually a companionship. Marriage is a mutual sharing of life together, not the woman serving exclusively so that the man may go and do what he pleases to do. If God is the Lord of salvation and salvation is unto life, then the things of life come under the transforming power of the word. And Luther himself elevated marriage and family life. In one of the scholar's words, he said, I place, or I, he placed the home at the center of the universe. His teaching and practice were so radical and so long-lasting that your home and mine have been transformed. So this is a subject that actually is having increasingly important relevance today. Let me just give you two points. The fact that we have legalized homosexual marriage means that we have redefined what marriage is. We've redefined marriage to be the sharing of love between two people who just really, you know, want to spend the rest of life together, when in fact, that's not biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is designed that there would be conjugal relationship producing children. That's biblical marriage. That's what God intends. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The other thing is regarding marriage is that there's recently a group of theologians, it's small right now, but it's going to be growing, who said or who are saying that the church idolizes the nuclear family. You know what the nuclear family is, right? Mom, dad, kids. A nucleus of society. And so this group of theologians is saying, you know, the church simply idolizes the nuclear family, 
And what we need to do is to get them to think more in terms of the intimacy of friends. Which falls far short of what God intends. Far short. And so we, as Christians who are Reformed, who really believe what God's word says, then needs to, we need to be clear on this so that we may speak truth to the situation. So there's three particulars regarding marriage that, um, that uh, the Reformers got a hold of, and they actually reformed them from the medieval mindset to something that we are now familiar with and are comfortable with. The first one is this, the idea of chastity. The ancient idea of chastity, the medieval church saw chastity as undistracted moral purity and devotion to God. To that end, everything that sex is was corrupted, but just necessary for humanity. Just necessary to be fruitful and to multiply. It's a concession, and it's demeaning. And it should really be done without emotion if you have to. But other than that, you should probably just enroll in a convent or a monastery and live your life in isolated devotion to the Lord. And so the church had decided that, well, let me, it's, it's interesting. St. Augustine actually had that mindset. St. Augustine portrayed sexual intercourse in paradise as, and that is paradise past, as um, without lust and without emotion. And that became, that that was a dominant thought in the culture. So much so that when Jerome wrote in the 400s, in the 4th century, he compared virginity, widowhood, and marriage. And he gave them numbers. He gave them a numerical value. Virginity, that's 100. Widowhood, that's 60, because the woman's devoted to the Lord, and that's pure. Marriage, 30. Marriage was denigrated. That's why the celibacy of priests came about. Priests, if they're really going to be devoted to God, are going to be undistracted by a wife undistracted by a family, undistracted by this problem of conjugal relationship with their, with their bride. And such attitudes impacted everybody, how everybody viewed the marriage bed. I mean, I could pick a line out of Shakespeare's play, Much Ado About Nothing, where Benedict's bachelorhood is crumbling, and he's trying to make reconciliation to it. And finally, he just throws up his hands and he says, well, the world must be peopled. because marriage wasn't anything important. And it was out of attitudes such as this that the church required the church, the, the clergy to be celibate. In fact, it frequently debated whether people who were serving as deacons or in some other capacity in the church shouldn't also be celibate. That's how seriously they went in carrying that thought out. And Luther... Luther was a leading defender of marital goodness. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. He wasn't talking about don't use the marriage bed. He's saying preserve it, keep it, don't let it be defiled by anything outside. 
1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, the Corinthians wrote this, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, close quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Luther's attitude was one of, this is, next to the church, this is the most important segment of society that needs reformation and transformation. He said that by taking to himself a wife, he wished to please his father, tease the pope, and vex the devil. And beneath all of that was a deeper and nobler motive to rescue the oldest ordinance of God on earth from the tyranny of Rome and to vindicate by his own example the right of ministers to the benefit of this ordinance. Under his view, marriage is a public event of far-reaching consequence. It created the home life of the evangelical clergy. And Luther had an absolutely wonderful marriage. He married a former nun, Catherine von Bora, who was intellectually his equal, temperamentally his equal. He used to call her Lord Kitty. Her nickname was Kitty My Rib. He loved her dearly. But he called her Lord Kitty. He had to make sure that whatever he was doing, Kitty was in agreement with The Reformers rejected the medieval church's teaching of chastity and actually brought the proper meaning back in. You can be chaste in marriage because sexual relations in marriage are pure. Don't let the world redefine that. Do not let the world redefine that. It's a blessing from God. He blesses it. So that was the first thing. The second thing was the dignity of women. Luther was a leading defender of the dignity of women. Proverbs 18.22, he latched onto this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And in Proverbs 31, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. He treated women with dignity as people who have intellects, as people who have purpose, as people who have, um, who have a calling from God. The last thing that the Reformation touched on and transformed was the whole matter of divorce. In the medieval church, divorce meant only the separation of a couple from a common bed and a common table, but not the dissolution of the marriage bond and the right to marry again. So long as the couple lived, they remained man and wife in the eyes of the church and had to live in the same house. 
And this meant that the turmoil of a failed marriage might never end for the couple. The reformers looked at the scriptures and said, that's nonsense. If Jesus permits divorce, an actual breaking of the marriage bond so that these people may go and live their lives, why has the church declared something different? And so they said, it's a real true breaking of the marriage bond. Protestant marriage courts did not permit divorce and remarriage to occur in any capricious way, like our culture, which assumes no-fault divorce. You know, well, you know, I'm actually tired of her, so I'm moving on. No, they did everything they could, made every effort to reunite the estranged couple and revive a dead marriage. Everyone concerned deemed the reconciliation preferable to divorce in every case. But if divorce must take place, it's a real breaking of the marriage bond. It sets both parties free from the marriage bond to live their lives according to conscience and, if God permits, to get married again and have that be a real marriage. That was, that was something that was now restored. And it, and it set the people free from the tyranny and the burden of an overpowering church. So many things that we embrace flow out of the Reformation because salvation belongs to the Lord our God which means we better learn about salvation as he's described it in scriptures. It's not just about having comfortable feelings about eternity. It's about transforming life. Calvin was only married nine years. His wife, Idolette, died at the age of 40. He never remarried. Even though he... He thought marriage was wonderful and delightful. He never remarried. But he said, these nine years were the most wonderful of my life. I have learned the sweetness of being married. He had known much about God, the Father is sovereign, and through the life of Idolette, his wife, he learned compassion tenderness, and he learned about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We have inherited a goodly, goodly legacy to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.